and good morning here from Fuzzy Logic here on 2XX. I'd like you to imagine now that you're sailing on a ship and the restaurant is a very fine restaurant and you're enjoying the nice meal, the canapes, the silver cutlery, the fine china and the top class meal. But so pretty soon the discussion goes into trivialities and we fall and we're arguing, is the canapes what I want? Why are we having burgundy and not claret? And what is it that the captain is wearing? Why do they have that silly skirt on that... Um, that that perfume that I don't like so much. And meanwhile, we forget the fact that we are sailing flat out through the icebergs in the North Atlantic Ocean. What really matters? Why are we not talking in Australia about the things that really matter? And today we're going to hit the big issues on fuzzy logic because there are things that really do matter to us right now. And I'm very pleased to have our guest today who is Dr. Bob Douglas, who comes from an organisation called Australia 21. And in my hand, I'm holding a copy of a series of essays that were recently produced and edited by Bob. And it's titled Placing Global Change on the Australian Election Agenda, Essays on Vital Issues that are being largely ignored. Now, on the cover, there is this photo and it's got a woman who's very snappily dressed. She's standing in what looks like a desert or a clay pan or something. And she's got a blindfold on. Bob, what's the significance of this cover? Well, I, I think the significance is that uh, for much of the Australian public in the last little while, uh, we've been blindfolded by the political debate that's going on uh, to the real issues that count. And that that uh, image was intended to point out that uh, we are like facing a firing squad, uh, and yet we're not talking about the issues. So we, we, we really are also like our crew, our, our guests at the table, distracted by the fripperies while the big issues are going untouched. That's right. We're, we're knitting while the, uh, uh, the planet burns. <laughs> well, the voice you hear is of Dr Bob Douglas, who is the chairman of Australia 21, and he's worked with the World, Ho- World Health Organisation. He's a former dean of the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Adelaide. He is a former emeritus professor at the ANU. He is a founder of the organisation called Sea Change and he's heavily involved with the Nature and Society Forum and he's also an Order of Australia recipient. Now, Bob, what are some of the issues that are being tackled or that Australia 21 is trying to tackle? Well, Australia 21 was set up about 12 years ago uh, because we believe that big issues were falling between the cracks and that we really did need to try and bring together the best minds in Australia to think about the factors that will really influence Australia's future. Uh, I suppose the the big one uh, at the moment, of course, is climate change, but there's a whole range of others. Uh, Issues such as uh, what we're going to do about our ecosystems. Uh, Why are we focused exclusively on the kind of economic growth that uh, that fuels consumption and the the uh, destruction of scarce resources 
Uh, what about our ecological footprints? Uh, what what kind of thinking are we doing about the changing world uh, around changed power structures in China and, and the United States? All of these things need to be seriously considered in public policy. Well, what's, let's start with climate change. What's your assessment, your, what's your personal and the assessment of Australia 21 on the current climate change situation? Well, we, we, uh, we do accept the validity of what the climate scientists are telling us, namely that uh, we're almost invariably committed to a two-degree world uh, and that uh, by two degrees world, I mean uh, an increase in temperature above pre-industrial levels of two degrees of the, of the, the average uh, climate of the globe, uh, that uh, the way we're heading, we're, we're inevitably heading for a four-degree world or even a six-degree world, neither of which are seriously livable by humans. Well, two degrees, so I don't put such a thick jumper on in the morning. What's the real impact of that? Well, two degrees is very much more than that. Uh, the, the global temperature uh, rising by two degrees is huge. Uh, already, at, at less than one degree rise over pre-industrial levels, we're losing much of the, the, uh, the ice sheet in the, in the Antarctic and the Arctic. Uh, we are losing glaciers and, and uh, the, uh, we're losing uh, the, the temperature of the ocean has changed uh, dramatically uh, and the uh, chemistry of the ocean has changed. So we are already experiencing the effects of a one degree. Two degrees will move... The world agreed in Copenhagen in 2009 that we should try... that we would be committed to avoiding two degrees. Well, we're no longer going to avoid that. We're going to go to two degrees. And if we don't have a dramatic change in the world's emissions of carbon dioxide, the modelling suggests that we're now committed to four degrees. So is that just a, a left-green ideological position or does it have a, a real pragmatic, practical effect on humanity? Um, well, I think it's much more than an ideological position. It's the consensus of uh, the vast majority of scientists who've been looking at this for the last 20 years. Um, it is... Uh, your, your question was, is it, is it pragmatic... Uh, are we, in fact, uh, inevitably committed to this? Uh, well, not if we can make dramatic changes. The question is, will our species make those changes? And it's, it's going to have to be an international agreement, not just a national agreement. But Australia could play an important role. Well, we'll get into some of the solutions and how these things are actually tackled. But uh, does it have effect on things like food production, on fisheries, on crops and rainfall and fertility of our soils and so on? All, all of those things. The, the, um, the Climate Commission, uh, which includes uh, uh, Will Steffen and, and uh, Tim Flannery and uh, a whole range of other luminaries, uh, issued a report last week that describes precisely the kinds of changes we're, we're heading towards. And, and what I've been talking about comes directly from their, their conclusions that 
Uh, we are threatening the agricultural productivity of Australia. Uh, we are threatening the uh, the uh, uh, water water uh, availability in Australia. Uh, we are heading. We're already experiencing uh, climate change events of fairly considerable magnitude, and these will increase if we can't uh, reduce the emissions of carbon dioxide. So if I use the label green and left in my question just a moment ago, what, why is it, do you think, that, that it is perceived in some quarters as being of that sort of debate and rather than a scientific debate? Well, I think there has been... There, there are two issues here. Uh, there are some people who have legitimate concerns about the nature of the science. Uh, they're not concerns that I accept, but there are some very thoughtful uh, sceptics. There are also, uh, there has been a very systematic attempt to, uh, to muddy the waters of science by the fossil fuel industries uh, over the last uh, 10 or 15 years, and they've been very successful. So that uh, there has been uh, and, and we, we've had some some uh, leading uh, politicians who've uh, come from the hard right who've said this all of this stuff is crap. Um, now there has been a tendency to try and marginalise the debate to the left wing. I think it is an absolute mainstream issue that we are facing uh, the kind of uh, crisis that demands wartime kind of uh, mobilisation of, of, of our best thinking. So if it's partly to do with vested interests, is it also an ideology of a sort on the other side in the sense that it's seen as governments meddling in free enterprise and the power of the individuals? So we want to do what we want and yet you're telling us now that we have to comply with some great grand scheme that you've got and we can't do what we want and our well-being and you know, our material lifestyle and so on is all threatened because you want to wind us back to handle these, these pressures. Yes, I, th I think there's unquestionably that, that perspective. There's also a difficulty and, and, and I think this is where what I've been saying might just seem to be doomsaying and frightening stuff. Uh, there is a difficulty in us thinking positively about a future that is out 20 years hence. Uh, we, we, we can all think about something that's happened yesterday or uh, is likely to happen next year or in the next two years. What, what the climate scientists have been saying is that the, the best estimates lead us to believe that... That if we don't take aversive action over the next ten years, very serious problems will occur in the next uh, twenty or thirty. So that's that's the the the, the difficulty that a lot of people have in coming to grips. Is, is there also a sense of our own psychology here? So you're referring to the time scale that we we find it hard to relate to those time frames, and also perhaps that it's a little bit abstract. So I recall. One morning I woke up and I listened to the news and they said the largest ever coral bleaching event just occurred in the Indian Ocean. But I had a nice breakfast, it was a nice warm day, my car was parked in the garage. Is it a little abstract for people to connect with? 
It's abstract and it's not the news we want to hear. So we, there is a natural, and, and in, the, in the essays that you referred to earlier, we've got several uh, leading thinkers, including one of Australia's best climate scientists, uh, discussing the very issues you're talking about. Namely, what is it about our psyche that leads us to want to suppress or deny uh, bad news uh, when, in fact the more positive action would be if we could say, yes, we know how to do this and we know what we can do and, and, and we, we can take a, play a part in doing it. Oh, so do you get a sense that we can do something or are we really powerless little paddle pop sticks washing down the drain? No, I, I have a strong sense that it, there is still time for us to turn things around. Uh, and... Uh, while I have days of depression and uh, misery about where I think the world is heading, I also have times when I see the way young people are starting to uh, respond to these challenges and, and respond to the real things we can do, where I think, yes, it's, it's doable. Well, we, I think, perhaps share the same dire view of the political debate that we hear through the media at the moment. Are we misplacing our trust in the political system or is it something that we as individuals have to take control of? Look, I, th I think the political system does not throw up people who are going to lead us on some of these things easily. Um, we get the political leadership we deserve and that we accept. Now, I'm frankly uh, hopeful that the change of national leadership in the Labor Party in the last few days may lead us to a focus on, on policy rather than on blue ties and, and on uh, uh, gender issues. Not that I'm downplaying the role that the previous Prime Minister has played, but I am concerned that the, the whole political debate has become trivialised around unimportant issues and we may now be in a position where we will see some real facing off between the two parties on these big questions. So a lot of pressure is on Mr Rudd then, because or now Prime Minister Rudd, and he's, he's noted for having not pushed through on his carbon tax agenda. Do you have a, a particular opinion on the best method, the best economic ways to meddle with the levers to change our carbon footprint? I, I think we, we have to first of all recognise the seriousness of the problem and, and at the moment both political parties are committed to a 5% reduction in our greenhouse gases when the, the, the sensible and desirable situation should be that at least by 2020 uh, we uh, have uh, 30 or 40% reduction in our current greenhouse gases. That's a big ask. That's a really big ask, and it, it means that we have to ask questions about our, our mining industry and, and our export of coal. It means we have to ask questions about uh, how we're going to change our uh, generation of energy in a very rapid way. What, what do you say when people point out that Australia is only, what, 1% or 2% of global emissions? Um, it's, it's only a small percent of global emissions but it's one of the biggest per capita emissions in the in the world and we are also one of the very largest exporters of coal in the world we are exporting emissions for other countries to burn uh, and we could be taking a very 
productive and uh, role in the international debate as uh, former Prime Minister Rudd and now Prime Minister Rudd tried to do uh, when he first took office. My hope is that in the discussions in the next little while we will have a genuine debate about what Australia is going to do about its coal industry, uh, what Australia is going to do about its emissions uh, and how indeed we're going to change our energy generation. Okay, so that's climate change. Now tell us a little bit about Australia 21. What sort of organisation is it and, and how does it see itself making a difference in this debate? Well, we're a small organisation. It's a voluntary organisation that's run by a board of uh, 15 directors. Uh, uh, I'm no longer the chairman of the board. It's uh, Paul Barrett, who used to be uh, Secretary of Defence. It's a group that says we need to be looking at the big questions uh, without constraint. Uh, And uh, we've therefore been able to bring together people from around Australia to talk about uh, our, the state of our ecosystems, uh, about the state of the, the nation's resilience, about our capacity to uh, deal with with um, uh, the declining uh, water resources, about uh, the economy, uh, and about more recently we've also done work on illicit drugs and on, on uh, uh, euthanasia. So they're big big policy questions that require people from all parts of the society to come together and we run round tables uh, at which we uh, focus on a critical question and then we put out the, the documents for uh, broad consumption. Our guest here today on Fuzzy Logic is Dr Bob Gug- Douglas who was until recently chairman of the organisation called Australia 21. Now you've chosen a piece of music for us uh, Bob, what, did, what is it, The Seekers? It's the Seekers and it's Future Road and it, I suppose it represents, it, for me, it's, it's one of the very positive songs that the Seekers sang in the, in the 80s and 90s and uh, I think the words are very pertinent to now. Okay, so here we are, the Seekers on Two Doblex and Fuzzy Logic. And an inspiring piece of music there from The Seekers, the classic Australian group. And our guest today is Dr Bob Douglas, who is from an organisation called Australia 21, trying to bring the big ticket items back onto the public agenda and do something about the things that really matter. Now, why did you choose that particular song, Bob? Because I think uh, it is up to the power of the people. I do think that uh, our leaders can only do what the people really want them to do. Uh, And uh, at the moment, I think it's probably true that our leaders are doing what the people want them to do. They want to to enhance uh, our material standard of living. Uh, But uh, I don't think the people now are being encouraged sufficiently to take seriously the challenge of the future and that was really how we got engaged in the in the whole sea change business now speaking of the future and our future lies with young people because young people become old people and they become people like us and they make a difference to the world and making a difference to those people is another guest that we have in the studio today who is alan lee who is a science teacher from radford high and i'm I'm very pleased to have you in the studio today alan 
Hello, say hello. Thank you, Rod. <laughs> now, Alan, you are involved every day with young and minds and young emerging attitudes and how people are going to face the world in the future. What, what are you seeing in the youth and where do you see the opportunities? Uh, these days, I think people are, uh, well, students are very um, interested in the world being a better place. Um, I suppose as a science teacher in particular, I'm interested in them having a good understanding of the principles behind their objections to uh, changes in the world and Do you think environment that a, change and a, so on. A conversation as the one we're having today might be <clears throat> very pessimistic. They might feel that they're powerless to do anything. Do you, do you see it as a part of something that you want to do to inspire them to... to to, as Bob is saying, to be leaders in the world and, and to make a difference on some of these difficult questions? Oh, I think very much so. I mean, uh, what Bob's saying is uh, inspiring. I think uh, to hear that um, good minds are banding together to uh, to think through the issues and uh, to look for what are realistic uh, goals that might be achieved and how you might go about achieving them is something that uh, students could really learn a lot from and certainly be inspired by. Do, do you think they're, they're turned on to them or do you think that they are distracted by the little things like the electronic gadgets and so on? <laughs> well, they're always distracted by electronic gadgets as we all increasingly are. Um, I think one of my concerns I think is that um, almost harking back to your uh, questioning about ideology is that um, it's very easy to fall into um, fairly empty sloganeering about a lot of these issues. And uh, certainly since I started teaching in the 80s, um, when many of us were very concerned about these sorts of things and also concerned about bringing it into the education system to get students to uh, move on to, to deal with them, um, it's become almost mainstream to be concerned about environmental issues and um, students I think are exposed to a lot of this from a very early age. The, the unfortunate thing is that they, the issues are enormously complex and um, they often don't have the understanding to really appreciate the details and subtleties of the arguments. And so it's all very well to beat your chest about it, but you're not really going to achieve anything unless you really understand the details of the arguments. And I think that's where um, science teaching comes into play, in that uh, it hopefully allows students to be able to sift through the arguments and understand the details of them. Well, here on Fuzzy Logic, we love science and we love inspiring people and we need teachers like you who are going to do that for our youth of today and our adults of tomorrow. So Bob, some of the other issues that Australia 21 is involved with is not, not just climate change, but what, what else? Well, one of the issues that has preoccupied us for some years has been the issue of ecosystem services. How do we value the services that we require from the ecosystems and why aren't we building those into the environmental thinking that's going on it's there's there, we have in canberra at the moment the world leader in this area a fellow named robert costanza and we've been running on australia 21 a program looking at ways in which we can Put, a, put an economic value on the ecosystem, on the services that we require. 
uh, a, a typical example is the, the pollination by bees. Uh, the, the 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 water that and the the adequacy of the, the clean water that uh, the ecosystems provide. The, the role that the green trees provide in terms of our our CO two. Uh, absorption and our uh, oxygen production. All of these kinds of uh, the 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 values that the ecosystems make to the to the society need to be brought into our our uh, uh, current thinking. And and we're making some progress in that with government departments. We've got a, we've got a very specialist team of people working on that. And and my hope is that that will become much more part of mainstream discussion in the next little while. The the other two areas that I've been very heavily involved in in the last twelve months have been the question of the uh, the uh, debate over euthanasia and the question of the debate over uh, legalising illicit drugs, because um, there have been some very negative consequences from the war on drugs that was started by Richard Nixon in, uh, uh, at the time of the Vietnam War. It's, um, yes, we'll, we'll get on to the war on drugs and the use of illicit drugs and because that kind of taps into your personal story, which is very interesting. But I want to go back to what you were saying about ecosystem services, and that seems like a fairly difficult thing, so I can just put a pipe out of my factory and pour the effluent into the river and it goes out into the ocean and then it's gone. That is, that's a fairly complicated thing. That's, that's called an externality, isn't it, I, I think? H- how do you build that into an economic model? Because it's driven on profits, on your direct costs to whoever's got the business and to the profits that goes to them. Well, uh, yes, there's a whole variety of economic devices you could use. One of one of them, of course, is the carbon pricing or the or the market market value of of uh, uh, carbon uh, uh, emissions. Um, there, there is a a, a wide body of, of uh, good ecological economics that's starting to be built around the way in which you can price the the ecosystems into the into the the system. Uh, we, we, we haven't really begun to do it, we, we, we've, we, except with the introduction of the carbon price. And I, I do think that uh, that's a step we need to not take backwards on. Yes. It is a difficult thing. It's seen as being, I guess, going back to our earlier conversation, meddling in the economy, is it not? So is it, how do you convince vested interests to, to go along with this? Or do you have to mandate it through a government or... Some such. Well, I think I think you you have to start with the community saying, look, our economy is not serving us in the way that we need, and that's where I come back to the, the young people, the children, uh, and and that's where we've been putting quite considerable efforts through the Sea Change organisation to engage young people in thinking about what is needed to address these problems and how do we do it. Um, and, and I'd be happy to talk about the the, uh, the program that that is now underway uh, in uh, 42 schools and colleges around the ACT uh, to engage children in thinking and imagining about a sustainable Canberra by the year 2020. Uh, that sounds like a good opportunity for a question. Uh, t- tell me about sea change and uh, how you're engaging with with school kids like that. 
Well, Sea Change is a community body which uh, has been operating now in Canberra for about six years uh, and which is focused on in engaging the community in changing its ecological footprint and uh, moving towards a more sustainable future. About two years ago, uh, we began a project within Sea Change called 2020 Vision, in which we said there is now a change in the national curriculum that, that expects and requires that uh, children at all ages will focus on the issue of sustainability. We brought a group of uh, teachers and environmentalists together to write materials for uh, the curriculum and uh, the Sea Change website in Canberra now has a wealth of materials around a whole group of uh, questions and issues uh, about Canberra's future. Uh, what's happened also is that the ACT government is leading the, the rest of Australia on its commitment to a sustainable future. It, it has committed to a 40% uh, reduction in our emissions by 2020 uh, on 1990 levels. That's about a 60% reduction on current levels. Uh, and it's also committed to a 90% uh, target on renewable energy by 2020. Those are very ambitious goals, and, and we in Sea Change were, were delighted when the uh, Assembly agreed to those. We had a bit of a hand in pushing them along, I think. Um, but the, the question now is how are we going to deliver them? And we want the, the young people of Canberra to tell the adults how they insist they will be delivered. And uh, to that end, we are working with the 40 schools that are involved in this parliament to, uh, to a parliamentary uh, session in November of this year at which the, uh, the schools will bring proposals for action uh, to be voted on by representatives from the, from the schools. The, 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 young representative, and the, the representatives range from uh, kindergarten through to the college level. We've had a series of green papers being prepared by college students from ten of the uh, twelve of the colleges, and those green papers will feed into a whole range of recommendations that also the high schools and primary schools are being invited to submit a one-page statement on one of the nineteen areas of sustainability. So we hope that by uh, the seventh uh, of November this year we will have a white paper that's been produced fundamentally by young people, that has been voted on by young people uh, and has been debated by young people uh, that, can be, that can go to the ACT Legislative Assembly as the requirements of uh, young people for sustainability by 2020. So I think if I pick up on what you're saying there, a principle that you're working on is these people are not powerless, that they are not just the paddle pop sticks washing down the drain, that they can actually make a difference themselves. Is, is that what, what's motivating you to do these things? Absolutely. I, I, uh, I happen to have uh, 13 grandchildren uh, and I've been watching their development. It seems to me that as they 
grow up and start take control, they they are going to need to be willing to take new responsibilities, and many of them are willing. I mean, I'm, uh, as it happens, uh, some of my grandchildren go to uh, uh, the same school as our other guest and and uh, teachers, and and I'm very impressed with the way young people are beginning to address the future. I, I, I like that because. Um it's very easy for the older generation to say young people of today, da 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 da. And I remember reading a quote and it went something along the lines of, oh, the young people today, they've got no idea, they waste their time, the world is going to down the pop, and what chance have we got? And the quote was, Pliny the Elder, date 10 <laughs> AD, or something like that. Well, uh, so it's good to hear some inspiring stories. And our guest inspiring us today is Dr. Bob Douglas from an organisation called Australia 21 with Alan Lee, who's also inspiring the youth of today through his science education at Bradford College. Now, Bob, you've chosen another piece of music. This is a very personal one for you, and I'll get you to explain after why you've chosen this particular piece of music. But first of all, can you tell us what it is? It's a piece called Jacqueline's Tears uh, by Offenbach, uh, and it's uh, a piece from a uh, volume on the cello. Um, it happens to be the piece of music that I find the most exquisitely beautiful piece of music I know. Uh, and it's uh, a piece that it seems to me uh, celebrates beauty in, in, its, in its best form. Well, dear fuzzy listener, you have been privileged to get a very personal piece of music here from our guest today, Bob Douglas, on Fuzzy Logic. beautiful piece, sublime piece of cello music there from Offenbach here on Fuzzy Logic 2XX. And our guest today is Bob Douglas, who is from the organisation Australia 21. Now, Bob, that brings deep personal feelings to you when you play that piece of music. Am I right? Yeah, I I just don't know a, a piece that makes me feel better about the world. Well, Bob, since we're talking about how you feel about the world, tell us a bit about about your background. There was an inspiring moment, some point at which you thought, this is what I want to do with my life. Well, I I think when I talked with you earlier, I I mentioned a a turning point for me when I went to Papua New Guinea as a specialist physician uh, and was being... uh, Uh, shown around Port Moresby by the then Deputy Director of Public Health and he said to me now listen Bob every time you prescribe a very expensive course of antibiotics for a patient just bear in mind that you may be depriving a village of a well now I had never thought about the trade-off between prevention and treatment before that time but I uh, was allocated to 
be the physician at the at the lay hospital and my first uh, ward round I found that a complete ward full of my patients were young men suffering from low bar pneumonia a condition I'd seen very little of in uh, in Australian training in, in public hospitals and that kind of set me thinking how do you prevent this how do you change this? You, and so I, I suppose that's where I became an epidemiologist rather than a clinician. I began thinking about what is it that changes uh, the situation in Papua New Guinea uh, from uh, a ward full of young men with low bar pneumonia and many of them dying from it to a situation where uh, you can uh, uh, have, a, have a much reduced incidence of that. And that's what led me to uh, work on the development of a vaccine to prevent low-bar pneumonia, which was licensed duly in the, in the, in the mid-70s. So did, was that an example of trying to balance the benefit to the individual, to the benefit of the whole? And, and is that what's driving you, is it, to, to for the common good? Yeah, I, th- I think, I think the, it, it, it exposed me to that contrast between... Uh, working as an individual with an individual to working as an individual with the the whole population. So, uh, I mean, the, the story in public health is, of course, that uh, your whole population is your patient uh, and uh, that you are thinking about how, does, how do you change that, the, the environment around that population. Now, the, the Papua New Guinea is a fairly out-of-the-way sort of place, I guess, what what sent you there in the first place? Uh, look, I, I think I'd come to the conclusion that the world was much bigger than Australia and that uh, the developing country was an area that I needed to understand more about. And, uh, I, I mean, I was uh, uh, interested in understanding the developing world and... Uh, uh, so having got my training as a physician, I volunteered to work in, in Papua New Guinea. So you already had a bit of an interest in trying to pursue the big picture in some way. So you recognised that Australia wasn't the centre of the world, that there was more things going on out there than you knew about. Was, was there a particular person or, or moment which inspired you in your earlier life to, to that kind of view? Um, I, I think... You know, I grew up as the son of a clergyman, and I'm sure there was a lot of do-gooding in my uh, my background. Uh, but my father was a was an inspiring person and uh, somebody who I uh, deeply admired, uh, who thought big about uh, the whole question of theology, for instance. So, Bobby, if you weren't on the radio with us today on Fuzzy Logic, where where would you be? I'd be attending the Quaker service in. Uh, uh, at the at the Quaker Meeting House, um, where I've found a very valuable home uh, for uh, thinking about big things. Now the Quakers are an interesting group. Tell me, tell me a little bit about the Quakers. What, what's their philosophy? Well, I'm, I'm not an expert because I'm an attender. I'm not a member. But uh, but the uh, the general principle is that one listens for the the moving of the spirit 
in uh, in yourself and in other people. And so the Quaker service is in fact a period of one hour of silence in which uh, maybe no more than four or five people will say no more than uh, 30 or 40 seconds worth of uh, contribution. But there is a pooling of the kind of thinking that's going on uh, and, a, and a recognition that there are things beyond us that uh, uh, we, we need to listen into. So it's a deeply introspective approach, is it? A deeply meditative approach uh, and an approach that uh, is open to uh, new insights and new thinking uh, that come from beyond ourselves. Do you, do you see parallels with Buddhism there and the contemplative and the, the meditative techniques of Buddhism? Absolutely. I think uh, um, whereas I suppose I grew up in a conventional Christian environment, I've, I've become much more open to a, uh, to a broader sense of, of, of what drives the world. So you, you, your attitude to conventional religion changed as a result of, of something or being exposed to Quakerism or, or something? Was it no, I, I think I was always a bit of a rebel uh, theologically. Uh, my father helped me to be so. Uh, and, um, uh, but I, I think I've become more and more dissatisfied with conventional theology. And since your experience in Papua New Guinea... You've had other life-changing approaches, such as your involvement with Australia 21. How did you come to be involved and, and found Australia 21? Um, I was director of the National Centre for Epidemiology at ANU uh, between 89 and, 90, and 2001. And in our last uh, major uh, project, which was on... Uh, uh, health disadvantage and, and variable disadvantage, I was working with a bloke named Fraser Mustard who had started the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research. We, uh, they had come to the view that we, they needed a different kind of research process uh, and they'd started that, that institute and Fraser Mustard said to me, well, you're about to retire, Bob, why don't you try and set something up here in Australia along these lines, which we did. Uh, and at, at the time I was working with uh, Paul Barrett, uh, former Secretary of Defence, and uh, a couple, uh, Fiona Stanley, who was the uh, who became the Australian of the Year, uh, and uh, about half a dozen of us said, "Yes, we need a different focus where we can bring uh, the best thinking we can together to focus on big, uh, wicked problems." And that was really the birth of Australia 21. So, would it be true that both of these moments have signified in your own self? the ability to stop, take track and really make a fundamental change in direction, maybe to question some of your own assumptions? Yes, I think so. Uh, I think, uh, but I don't think it happens just with in, in uh, light bulb moments. I think it also happens uh, constantly and uh, uh, I'm, I'm uh, very lucky to be married to somebody who, who keeps pushing me to think uh, creatively and constructively and practically and pragmatically about these things. Well, creativity and innovative thinking is often very challenging. And is it something that you think that most people find difficult to do? So are we asking something of people who really just want to think about their garden or their next home renovation 
how, how do we is it too much to ask for the, that sort of person to to really pick up something like climate change and uh, you know the peak oil and those other big ticket items I don't think it's too much to ask and as I say I'm I'm deeply committed to uh, the the next generation it seems to me that that the the nurture of creative and and open thinking in young people about ways in which they can play a role and and let me say I've, I've in in the course of my uh, recent activities I have come up against some incredibly impressive young people who are letting letting their minds run now this kind of thinking I think is evident in our approach to illicit drugs because that's very much a hard line issue in for, for many people and, and if we're going to go so-called soft on drugs what, what brought you into that particular field um, when I was working at the ANU uh, we embarked on an effort to uh, conduct a trial of heroin in the treatment of heroin addicted people um, it was a it was an idea that uh, was part of the harm minimisation approach that was being advocated uh, widely, but nobody was really embarking on it worldwide at the time. Uh, we consulted widely and decided it was worth doing, uh, but uh, the, uh, the United States were pretty upset at what we were doing and put some pressure on uh, John Howard at the time, who who. Uh, uh, called a halt to the the program that uh, his own health minister was was working closely with us on uh, Michael Wooldridge. So um, the heroin trial never happened, but uh, Australia 21 decided that the, after the uh, an international commission had come out and said the war on drugs is lost, uh, we're 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 desperately um, destroying. Uh, large countries with this war on drugs and the, the countries of South America are, are, are in revolt against the, the uh, uh, prohibition of illicit drugs because uh, the criminal uh, mafia have really taken over the whole drug uh, trade. So uh, we in Australia 21 held a round table last year and, and, and then another one to look at what the alternatives might be to uh, continuing prohibition. Uh, there are some very good alternatives. A number of countries have, uh, and Portugal's one in, one in point, that have, that have really decriminalised the whole operation of uh, uh, illicit drugs uh, and with very good outcomes. Uh, we've, the debate is still boiling in Australia and I hope that after this election is over uh, we'll be able to return to it and that whoever's in, in power will take uh, and, this one on. And if people want to be involved with Australia 21, with Sea Change and with the other organisation, the Nature and Society Forum, Forum, can they find links online and other opportunities for them? Yes, Sea uh, Change, they can go straight to the uh, S-E-E-C-H-A-N-G-E. -E -E. uh, that's the, the lead into the, the website, and you can sign up there. Australia 21, you can become a, 
uh, a uh, recipient of the regular newsletter and uh, there's, there's ways in which you could become in, involved uh, and Nature and Society Forum. All of those three things are available and have very good websites through which you can uh, make contact. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Bob. It's been a pleasure to have you on Fuzzy Logic. The voice you've been hearing is Dr. Bob Douglas, who is from Australia 21, Sea Change. And we've been talking today about the big issues. Now, plenty coming up more for you on Fuzzy Logic today in the Canberra Time. Check our Ask Fuzzy column. And a reader asked me the question, what is potable water? In fact, why do we call it potable or potable? What's drinkable? And I have a water quality expert who's written that one for us. And you can send your own questions to askfuzzy at zoho.com. And I have an interview lined up, I think, in October with Professor Paul Ehrlich, who is a great figure in the history of the environmental movement and telling us the dangerous population growth and what we're doing to ourselves and to our planet and what kind of suicidal path we're currently heading on in that. And we also have our panel coming up for National Science Week, the rise of cyborgs and post-human beings here on Fuzzy Logic. Catch you later. Enjoy the rest of your day. See you later.